Let's pray. God, this morning, first, I want to pray for a uh, local official and pray for somebody on city council, uh, Dan Perkins. I specifically want to lift up this morning and pray for Dan's worship. Uh, believe that Dan professes you as Savior and Lord and Christ as his Savior and Lord and that he is in fellowship with you through Christ's work. And we pray right now as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, that that faith will fuel Dan's decisions on city council, that it will guide those decisions and that he will be a salty and bright and aromatic fixture uh, in the um, decision-making body there. I pray that as, as he has opportunities to consider things and engage things, that he is a, a faithful representative of your son. We pray, too, for his uh, marriage, his worship, his walk with his family, and I pray that all those things will be blessed and also will be bright, aromatic uh, instruments for your, for your use and your glory. To Lord, we want to pray this morning for a brother and his uh, family and for a sister church, uh, for David Ferguson and Whitney, and pray for Commerce Community Church in Commerce. Just thankful for um, shared DNA, thankful for shared burden, uh, obviously a shared baptism and Holy Spirit and Lord and all the things that we have in common, but just so much more as members of one another in a lot of ways. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be involved uh, at their beginnings and uh, to be involved and walk with David periodically. I want to pray for David's worship and um, for his ministry. Just thinking about some of the challenges of week after week, having to sort of park your own problems and your own feelings. And uh, even if you may not feel good, you may have had crosswords with your spouse or you may have had a kid talk back or all these things that so easily step into the pulpit with you. I know how hard that is to put those things aside and to preach and proclaim and herald a message week after week. And I uh, pray that you will guard uh, David from that roller coaster, uh, that you will uh, just make him and keep him a useful, faithful instrument and mouthpiece for your message. I pray for his marriage. I pray that he'll have occasions that are few and rare when he has baggage that walks into the pulpit with him. But I, I pray that his marriage will be something that will be a salty, bright, aromatic instrument for your glory as we prayed for Dan this morning. I pray that his kids will see what the gospel looks like in the way that he relentlessly walks with Whitney. Lord, I pray that the ministry that he is uh, part of at C3 along with uh, the other elders of C3 I pray that it's something that makes much of you. I pray that you would guard them as you would guard us from just going through the motions and just getting church on. I pray for a sobriety, an honesty, even a frailty to their walk where they see that our gospel is never ourselves, but it will always be, the good news will always be what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, in these next few minutes, pray that you will be enjoyed. Pray that Christ will come into focus more for us as we hold our eyes up to the lens, our 
have a lens of Moses and his work and his faithful ministry as high priest or as priest and apostle. I pray for the Holy Spirit to speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a, I want to say just briefly, and then I want us to jump into this. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. There's a, a feeling sometimes um, in ministry that you're supposed to make things look effortless, that faithfulness e- equals effortlessness, and that's just baloney. Anybody that makes faith look effortless or um, leading worship or preaching, or being a deacon, or a shepherd of a family, anybody that somehow makes it look effortless, um, chances are they're not telling you the whole story, or you don't know them well enough to know. They may not be withholding. You may just not know them well enough. So um, as praying for David Ferguson, there's some very personal things there that, that just influence you from week to week that I'm praying for myself as well, things that you carry with you wherever you go. You can't park your humanity at the pulpit. And... Uh, it's just a, um, if you ever have the impression that people have all their stuff in one bag at your church, then you need to find another church. Or you need to get to know them better. Because nobody does. We're, we're not our message. Jesus is our message. So, this morning we're going to enjoy him. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's all we're doing these last few weeks and these next few. We're just considering Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We're going to move through these verses over the next few weeks, but just connection to what I just said. Faithfulness does not equal effortlessness. Faithfulness equals relentlessness. Faithfulness equals holding fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Week after week after week after week. When it's easy, when it's hard, when it's fun, when it's real not. (laughs) That's faithfulness. Last week, we considered the faithfulness of Christ in contrast with the really bad pictures. Last week, we considered the faithfulness of Christ in contrast with three guys, Eli, Phineas, and Hophni, a very sober message. This week, though, we are, fa- we are contrasting, instead of bad with great, we're contrasting good with great to understand Jesus better. This week, we're going to be considering the man Moses. Specifically, here in verse 2, the second part of verse 2, we're considering Jesus, who's faithful to him who appointed him, 
just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. That last phrase there, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, last week I mentioned that there are musical phrases. I don't know what the term would be in music. A section of music that it's easily recognizable. Another one bites the dust is the one I used last week. We could use one that's, that's close to home. I can only imagine, and we know exactly where that comes from. Our version or their version of what I'm talking about right here is right here in front of us. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house would take them immediately to passages where we're going to go this morning, where we're going to end up this morning in Numbers chapter 12. I don't want you to turn there yet, but I just want to get you into the context to realize that we this morning have to become sort of Jewish. We have to become Jewish, and with the Jews, we have to venerate Moses for a few minutes. With the Jews, we have to, with the Jews, think that there was no finer man on the face of the earth than the man Moses. That's the information and the thought that we have to bring to get the point that the Hebrews preacher is making here. So that's what we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to bring Moses into focus. First, as an apostle. Second, as high priest. And third, as a faithful man in all God's house. As a man who is faithful, who's humble, who's loving, who's otherworldly faithful. And then we're going to contrast those with Christ. So first, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. Let me prepare you too that this morning we don't have a lot of passages to go to, but the passages that we have to go to, I'm reading large sections of Scripture. So I'll try and make those um, um, interesting. We'll kind of connect to those, some thoughts as we go. Uh, that may be a new thing for you to be in a, a place where you're hearing large sections of Scripture um, but you get broad sweeps. You get big pictures there is what I want us to get in these next few minutes, big pictures of Moses. So Exodus chapter 3, first we're going to deal with Moses as apostle, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, some people believe that, and I'm not, I'm kind of undecided on this. Some people believe that Horeb is the same thing as Sinai. They're used sort of interchangeably, and at times it looks like it's the same place, and then at other times they look like they might be a little bit different place. So we don't need to get bogged down on that, but at least if you hear me refer to Horeb, likely I'm going to use them interchangeably in these next few minutes with Sinai. The mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, you know where the Israelites are right here. They're back in Egypt, and they're making bricks without straw. And they have stripes on their back from years and years and years and years worth of slavery. They've been in Egypt for 400 years, and it's gotten progressively worse over the course of that time. Moses is out tending the flock. The Israelites are back in Egypt. And Moses said, huh, look at this burning bush. It's not consumed. I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses is at least curious. We know that about him so far. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, 
here I am. And then he said, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And by the way, at least as far as the scriptures show, he's been silent for 400 years. We don't, we don't know that he's been silent. He may have spoken to people at times, but biblically, at least in terms of the text, there's not a spoken word that we have recorded here in that 400 years. But God's still God, and Israel is growing into a progressively dark situation. Those of you who are in a progressively dark situation, you wonder where God is, you can read this story and know that, oh, he's still God, and he's still on his throne, and other passages tell us he was waiting for the wickedness of the Amorites to come in. He was working out a time, timeline that was his own, not yours, and not the Israelites. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, watch what he says, these verbs, they're so great. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. They cried for 400 years saying, God, where are you? And he says, I've seen your affliction. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I have condescended to deliver my people. And I'm going to take them, not only deliver them, but I'm going to take them to a sweet land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them, brick-making without straw. Now this next verse, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That word there, send, in the Septuagint, you remember, that's our reference here. If we're going to become Jews for a morning, we need to specifically become Jews that are in the diaspora, meaning that are in the Roman Empire, not in Israel. The Jews that were in the diaspora spoke Greek, and they're reading the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. You might see it at times marked LXX. And in the Greek Septuagint, the word there, the Greek word is the word apostelo. This is where Moses would be identified as an apostle. And this is where, as they're hearing about Jesus being an apostle and high priest, just as Moses is faithful in all their house, they're thinking, oh yeah, Moses was the only other dude that wore both those hats as apostle and priest. And here's where Moses is sent Continues on in verse 11. Moses says to God, Who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Horeb slash Sinai. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, here it is more, this language again of apostolic movement. God has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
It's where we get the name Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Moses was clearly moving as an apostle. And here in chapter 4, if you look on to the next page, I want you to see what he comes with. He comes with a message from God, but this message is validated through what you're about to see in chapter 4. Keep all these things in mind because we're going to look at Jesus later. Exodus chapter 4. This is a pretty funny little section. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And I say, No, man, I saw this bush, and it wasn't burning up, and it was crazy. And I couldn't figure out why it wasn't burning up. So I went over there, and God started talking to me out of it. They're like, Yeah, right. You are crazy. He says, Okay. If I go say, and they're going to say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And Moses is holding a staff. You know, he's been tending sheep. You know, you just envision a shepherd's staff. What is that in your hand? Uh, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. <laughs> I've read that story a hundred times, and I don't know why. It just made me laugh this time around that Moses ran from it. It's just funny. Hey, man, my staff just turned into a snake, and you just run for your life. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and zap, it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Moses says, okay, well, that's going to help. I mean, I'll tell them about the burning bush. They're going to think I'm crazy. But then I got this staff trick, staff slash snake trick. I don't know anybody else has got that trick. That's going to be pretty impressive. But the Lord said to him, now, that's not all I'm going to give you. Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. There's different forms of leprosy, and they all don't have to do with like your nose falling off. That's kind of our image of leprosy. But leprosy had to do with any skin condition. And in this case, put your hand inside your cloak, pull it out, and it's going to be like when, when, when the kid's been in the tub too long. You know, where, where you come out and you're all shriveled up and you're white, you know, real pale looking. That, that, this is that times 100. This white, pale, leprous-like snow hand. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. That's a pretty neat trick, too. You got the snake slash staff trick. You got the leprous hand slash healed hand trick. And if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign that, may, that they may believe the latter sign. If they do not, or if, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile. Now he's moving into one of the first plagues. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground ground. The thing I just want to establish, we don't need to spend a lot of time there because it's going to come full circle. We're going to see it in focus when we see Christ. Is that Moses too was sent, apostelo, and that Moses came not empty-handed, but with tricks 
And I don't mean to minimize those things by calling them tricks. In contrast to what we're going to look at in a minute, they're pretty neat tricks. In contrast to what we see Christ do. Secondly, Moses served as a priest. This section is a lot more sober. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Here's where the story gets really sober. Moses is serving as an apostle. You remember from a few weeks ago, apostles' job is to represent God. You can think about the movement that Moses had. You know the story, or you may be familiar with the story, where he's going up the mountain to get the message from God, and he's coming down with the message. That's a very apostolic work. He's going to get God's message, and he's coming down to represent God's, God's message to the people. So Moses, right here in chapter 32, is serving as an apostle faithfully. That's where we pick up in verse 1. Moses has been up the mountain for some time, and the people of Israel are starting to get bored. They have apparently amnesia over the fact that they walked over the Red Sea on dry ground. Amnesia over hearing and seeing Mount Sinai quake, hearing God speak from heaven, where they all had to go change their underwear. They've apparently forgotten about the nation of Egypt or the Egyptian soldiers being folded into the Red Sea. And Moses has been up the mountain doing the apostolic work for a while, and they've gotten bored. And that's where we pick up. The people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and said, Up! Up! Makes me think of a, a comedy thing that I saw. What's the, what's the guy's name, Luke? What's his name? Brian Ray, Regan? Bring me the head of a pig and a goblet of something cool and refreshing. That's what it sounds like right here. Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. Entertain us, Aaron. Moses has been gone for some time, and we find ourselves bored. As for this Moses, the man who, got, who brought us up out, out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, okay, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, the sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When you read the story, it's really hard to believe. It's hard to believe that this could unfold. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the anti-version of what we're going to have after a while. This is the anti-supper. We're going to eat and drink after we dance around the fire like a bunch of hooligans worshiping our own version of God, a little golden calf, and then we're going to rise up to play. There's no sobriety in that. It's all about fun. Up, bring me the head of a pig and something cool and refreshing. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Notice what he says here. 
Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, there were times where I would get in such trouble with my mom that when my dad would get home from work, my mom would turn to my dad and say, you need to go tend to your son. And I'm thinking to myself, I think I'm your son too, mom. But that's not the way she's thinking because she's hacked. Listen to the language that he's using. Go down for your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Really? Where was the golden calf when we parted the Red Sea? What golden calf? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, here's where Moses comes into focus. You needed all that context to understand what Moses is about to do. Listen to what Moses, a man who prefigures our Savior, listen to what he says. But Moses implored the Lord his God. Watch him move as a priest now. He implored the Lord his God, representing a bunch of people that don't deserve a representative, frankly. He implored the Lord, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? They're not my people, God. They're your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? He's appealing to God's reputation. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, God, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I'm going to continue on just for the sake of context. It's a snapshot of Moses. You're going to see another snapshot in a moment. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But he said, no. It's heartbreaking right here. No. It's not the sound of shouting for victory. Or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. They ate and drank and rose up to play. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they'd made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you to have you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. Sounds like Adam. The woman that you gave to me, she's the one that talked me into this. So it's your fault, God, and her fault. Definitely not my fault. You know these people. They have an evil bent. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That's a fair representation so far. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and pop, out came this golden calf. Okay, Aaron, likely story. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, here he's apostolic, Put your sword on the side of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his neighbor and his companion and his neighbor." or his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. It's a great example. Without the remission of sins, or without the, 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 there will be no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It's a visual aid of that reality from Hebrews chapter 9. These 3,000 became the sacrifice that would atone for the people. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can be a worthwhile, faithful priest and make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's a selfless dude right there. Blot me out if you won't forgive them. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit it, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. I wish that was the end of the story. But you need to hear a tad more of the story and then something else will come into focus from Moses. Continue. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. An angel? Yeah, I, I'm going to send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. 
lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. The picture here is I'm not going to go into the promised land with you. I'm going to send a representative of mine. I'm going to send an angel. Let's see what Moses says. Beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. I'm not okay with an angel, God. That's what he's saying there. You haven't said, Who's it going to be? Michael? Who's it going to be? Some other angel? Some super angel? You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this, is, this nation is your people. And God said, okay, faithful priest, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Okay, faithful priest, who came and interceded and represented people that didn't rate an intercessor, that didn't rate a mediator, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us, or is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, you didn't hear me the first time. I said, this very thing you've spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. I'm going with you. I'm not going to send an angel in my place. I'm going with you. This story here is an amazing story when you really take it in and you consider consider what's developed here. You consider the travesty of their sin, the ugliness of their sin. When you take those things in, you can't help but marvel at what God did here. Deuteronomy chapter 9, don't turn there, just listen to this passage. It brings a little more into focus specifically what Moses did. The story is a recounting of what happened 40 years earlier. Moses is on Nebo, about to die. The nation of Israel, second and third generation, are about to go into the promised land. And Moses is recounting what happened 40 years earlier. And he says this, And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. Makes sense? And Moses said, And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. When you take in and consider what happened here, when you consider the vile sin of the people, you consider what Moses did praying for those who didn't deserve an intercessor. Praying for Aaron by name, his own brother. Seriously? It's got to give you pause where you realize, man, this guy was a faithful priest. For a moment, maybe we too this morning can venerate him with the Hebrew church, and marvel, man, was there ever a finer man on the face of the earth? Now, Numbers 12. Turn to Numbers 12. 
This is our third glimpse at Moses, and then we're going to look at Christ. The glimpse there in Exodus chapter 32 is sober. The glimpse here in chapter 12, to me, there's a whole lot less bloodshed, but to me it's even more amazing. Listen to what happens. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Let me tell you who these guys are. Aaron is Moses' brother. Miriam, most of you, many of you probably know, Miriam is Moses' sister. Miriam is likely the sister that whenever Moses went on a little bitty ark in the Nile, a little bitty basket that's covered with pitch where the, the Pharaoh is killing all the young boys and Moses is launched off into this Nile by his mom. And the, the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, and there's an Israelite woman there. It actually says it's his sister that says, Hey, Mrs. Pharaoh's daughter, do you want a Hebrew woman to raise this boy? And she says, Ah, it's a good idea. So he goes to get her mom, to get his mom. That's likely the Miriam we're talking about right here, the sister. She's likely the big sister of Moses. We don't know if Aaron was a younger or older brother, likely considering what was going on in Egypt when Moses was born. I'm betting he's a younger brother. Where the next Pharaoh said, I'm not going to kill little boys. But Miriam is a sister, and Aaron is a brother, and they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he married a Cushite woman. And they said... Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Just so you know, if there's an aversion to leadership and authority in you, you need to know that that's not something new. That you're not the first renegade. You're not the first maverick. You're not the first person that's ever said, I don't need you to hear from God. Moses and Aaron, or Aaron and Miriam do it right here to their own brother. And you know as well as I do, Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor except in his own land. It's a great picture of it right here. I was there when Moses was born. I'm the one that pointed out to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, you want to grab that Hebrew baby right there? You want a Hebrew woman to raise him? He'd be dead if it wasn't for me. Aaron probably has his own smug little thoughts. I'm his mouthpiece. He's not a very good talker. He needs me. And both of them are coming at Moses man, we don't even need you at all. Hadn't God spoken to us as well and through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Other translations say he was humble, more than all people on the face of the earth. It's a, this, this one passage is the greatest evidence that the first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses at some point had an editor. Because you have to know that Moses couldn't write those words and continue to be the most humble and meek man on the face of the earth. Somebody else said this about him. He was the most meek and humble man on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. 
Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There it is. There's the phrase that this Hebrew church would have heard and gone immediately back to this story right here. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So many words he's saying, he bears my message. How dare you come against my mouthpiece? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she's leprous. And Aaron, you can imagine, he's scared to death at this point, said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses, if he were like me, he would have had a little smile, snicker on his face. and said, that's what you get, Miriam. How dare you come against the man, right? I might be your brother, but I'm the man. But not Moses, the most meek and humble man on the face of the earth, is prefiguring our Lord. And this man, this most humble, faithful, meek man on the face of the earth, cried to the Lord. Man, you hear passion here. Oh, God, please heal her. Please. The Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. It's otherworldly faithfulness. Otherworldly selflessness, otherworldly love and humility. And to me, the coolest thing about this story is it's with his brother and his sister. We spent some time with some friends of ours the last couple of days, and we were the wife of this couple that we were spending time with said something about their kids, about their middle one being such a a mother, just kind of a motherly sort that's tending to other people and helping other people out. If Luke, we're camping, so lots of things, you know, I need this or I can't find this. Or If Evan and Luke or Daniel needed something, man, this, this little girl was up and at him and meeting that need and, you know, can I serve you? And she said, yeah, she's a real servant with everybody except her sister. <laughs> and I said, you know, they're not unique because I see that in my own family. You know, our kids go off to school or they go visit with someone else and the parents or the teachers say, man, what an amazing kid. He's so thoughtful. He's careful. He's just tending to other children. And they're like, really? (laughs) You must have gotten them mixed up with somebody else's kids. Because we see them at home with their brother and sister. Like, seriously? But here Moses is being selfless and loving and faithful and humble with those that honestly, if you have a brother or sister, you know 
that are in the hardest, hardest people in the world to be faithful and loving and selfless with. Man, at the end of his life, this epitaph of his life was characterized in Deuteronomy 34. Just listen to it. Here's how they characterized Moses' life. Moses died at the end of Deuteronomy. He died on Nebo. The nation of Israel goes on into the promised land. Joshua leads the people. Listen to what they say about Moses. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Nobody else was like Moses. And I wrote in my Bible right under that, till Jesus. Big, all caps, till my Jesus. Man, the Hebrews preacher's taking us there, so we're going to go right where he's led us. First of all, Jesus as apostle. John chapter 14, you can turn there. This will be much quicker, much smaller passages of Scripture, but hopefully poignant, potent, powerful. You remember the book of John is where we went the last couple of weeks or a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus as apostle where passage after passage it says that he's sent. You remember that machine gun of passages for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. My teaching's not mine but his who sent me. Passage after passage where he's saying I've, I've been sent. I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true. This book is about a sent Jesus. And what goes with that sending as what went with Moses is signs and wonders. John chapter 14, verse 10 says this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Philip has just asked him, ordinary Phil, said, Jesus, you know, if you could just show us the Father, that'd be good enough for us. And Jesus says, Phil... You are so ordinary. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Don't they speak for themselves? The book of John is a collection of miracles, seven of them. The whole story of the book of John is built around seven amazing miracles that take a staff slash snake trick, that take a leprous hand, leprous healed, leprous healed, and make it look pretty pale. The wedding at Cana, he turns water to wine. Healing of a nobleman's son. Healing of a man at a pool of Bethesda who had been lame for 38 years. Feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. Walking on the water because he owns gravity and he owns density. Healing a man born blind. Who's ever done that? Giving him sight when his whole life he had been blind. And last, the most amazing one of all, 
raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's a good thing he called him by name because if he hadn't and said, just said, come forth, the graveyard would have emptied. The staff snake trick, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Leper's hand, healed hand trick, pretty cool. Blood from the Nile, that's pretty neat. But it pales compared to my Jesus. It's just a shadow of the substance and form that is our Jesus. The end of the book of John ends with these words that make me wonder what else happened. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Man, it's going to be fun and glory enjoying all that he's done, hearing the rest of the story seeing the signs and the wonders through his telling it in great detail because that's what apostles have is signs and wonders and that's what he had. Secondly, as high priest, turn to Luke chapter 22. This is the last section of scripture, larger section of scripture I'm going to read to you this morning. And it'll be a nice lead in into our supper here in a few minutes. Thinking about Jesus as high priest, A couple of weeks ago, we sort of camped out on the high priestly prayer as being really the high point of the movement of a priest where he's praying for his people. You may remember some of the things that he asked for in that prayer. I'm praying for these disciples in front of me. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. He's praying a very surgical prayer, and he says, keep them in your name which you've given me. He says, keep them from the evil one. He's praying for protection. In verse 20 and 21 of chapter 17, he says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, I pray that they'll be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He prays for oneness. And in verse 24, he prays that they would see his glory and that they would be with him forever. The high priestly prayer It's temptation to read this prayer and forget who he's praying for and even forget the context. The night that he prayed this high priestly prayer, you need to know that it was not a real sweet, cool, awesome, kumbaya kind of night. The Lord's Supper took place that night. There's some foot washing. You know, Jesus teaches his final things through visual aids as well where he washes their feet but there were some other things that took place that night that are so easy to lose sight of listen to the Luke account beginning in verse 7 then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed so Jesus sent Peter and John saying go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it they said to him where will you have us prepare it and he said to them behold when you've entered the city a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house the teacher says to you where is the guest room where may I eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished prepare it there and they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover so far it is a kumbaya night it's like man that's pretty cool just say hey we're gonna have a passover meal right here and it's gonna be by the way prepare it for us 
And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup when he'd given thanks. Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Sweet night so far. Sweet. One that we read weekly or often on our supper. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. For the Son of Man goes, that is as... It has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. The supper is going south. This evening is having a bad turn. It's been pretty cool so far. He hasn't prayed the high priestly prayer yet. Listen to what happens before he prays the high priestly prayer. In case you think these were shiny pennies he's praying for here. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. On the night where he is serving them, on the night where he is washing their feet, on the night where he will be arrested and then nailed to a tree the next day after being beaten nearly to death. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest? It doesn't sound as crazy as making a golden calf, but it is. Seriously? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, sons of Zebedee. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as one who serves." You are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Simon, Jesus speaks to him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, till you deny three times that you even know me. This meal on the eve of his cross, this meal, what's right up next to his high priestly prayer where he asks for those things, where he intercedes for them, proves that they're no different from Moses interceding for a fallen, wicked, golden calf worshiping Israel. There's not a dude at this table that doesn't have some golden calves in his heart somewhere.
And yet Jesus prays for oneness for them. He prays for protection for them. He prays that they would be with him. He prays that they would see his glory. What Moses prayed for Israel is a shadow of what Jesus prayed for right here. This is the substance. This is the form. Christ's otherworldly faithfulness is brought into focus when we look at it through the lens of stories like Moses' account, praying, lifting up, undeserving Israel. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The Moses for the Aaron. The Moses for the Miriam. The Moses for the Israelites. Jesus for the sons of Zebedee. I want to be greatest. No, I want to be greatest. Jesus for proud Peter. I will never forsake you. The righteous died for the unrighteous. People, that is our gospel. That is our good news. That is our good news. Peter, sons of Zebedee, Aaron, Miriam, Israel, those are tutors of who we are. Our Bible's full of them. Tutors of who we are. How could we ever be proud? Tutors of who we are. The lesson for the Hebrews church and the lesson for Crosspoint is rejecting Jesus would be like Israel rejecting Moses. Moses was how Israel heard from God. And for us to consider, for the Hebrew church to ever consider rejecting Jesus would be ridiculous. Moses was all Israel had to represent them to God. He interceded for them, and he was an apostle representing God to them. If the Hebrews church is considering going back to Old Testament Judaism, they would be rejecting the one that Moses prefigured, the irony. Ironically, in going back to Moses and all he represented, they would be dismissing the whole purpose of Moses. Man, he sheds a big spotlight on that. I was helping Evan with some homework this week. And we talked about a man, we talked about a good passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Listen to this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Man, you can go back to the finest version of what Moses brought, and it will never leave you perfected, ever. You can be the finest Jew this world has ever known, and it will never leave you perfected because Moses was shadow. The law was shadow. Substance and form is Christ. That's the point for the Hebrews church. As we talked about last week, we have our own versions. I don't think any of y'all are in danger of going to, he, to, to Judaism. But we're always in danger and always on the bubble to falling back on something that'll be easy. I'll bail on this marriage because it's hard, it'd be easier. I'll bail on this church because it's just so sober. And people want to ask hard questions. They want to be involved in my life, and they want me to be involved in theirs. I just want to go to church somewhere. Why does everything have to be so hard? And ironically, it would be trading form, or it would be trading shadow for form. It'd be like trading, I thought of some illustrations, I, I think in car terms, it'd be like trading a Lamborghini for a Model T. It'd be like trading your birthright for a bowl of soup, if we want to use some biblical illustrations. It'd be like a dude trading his wife for a virtual version online. Dudes. It's travesty. It's criminal. Is it easy? Yeah. She doesn't ever have any problem with you. You just pull her up online, there she is. But it's heartbreaking. Trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. You abandon Jesus? You look for an easy way? And you're not going to hear from God anymore. The point to this sermon this morning is really a redundant point from last week. Enjoy our Moses. Enjoy our new and better and finer and final Moses. And don't ever ever consider a fallback replacement. Don't ever do it because even the best of replacements is just a shadow. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful with this church. I think we can agree on this this morning. We are thankful for the man Moses. We're thankful for Israel. We're thankful for a big Old Testament that helps us make sense 
of a new covenant. Thankful for the faithfulness of Moses. We're thankful to see this morning for a few moments the really, really good so that you by doing that could bring into focus the really, really great. Father, this morning we together enjoy the really, really great. We enjoy together that this gospel that we proclaim, this gospel that we believe, this gospel we enjoy is one where you take Israelites, Miriam's, Aaron's, James and John's, sons of Zebedee, Peter, where you take people that frankly don't deserve a representative. And you give us some righteous clothing that was earned by a blessed other. We enjoy our new and better and final and fine Moses that is Christ. We look forward to eating a proper meal this morning in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.